It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Welcome back to another episode of Everything Will Be Okay. This week, I'm joined by the author of Die With Zero. Bill Perkins is an author and businessman who originally studied electrical engineering and is now using his own life experiences to encourage others to take in all that life has to offer. Bill's live large philosophy implores people to chase opportunities that bring them happiness savor relationships that matter most to them, and pursue their wildest dreams. His insight is truly eye-opening. Bill Perkins, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I have to tell you how I even found out about your book. Um, My husband and I have a place down at the Jersey Shore, and we like it in the off-season as well as the summertime. So we were there in the winter a, a few weeks ago, and at a dinner party with just friends that also are cold weather and Jersey Shore people. And one of them, Billy Blooms, uh, we were just talking about books we were reading and he said, oh, I'm reading this really interesting book called Die With Zero. And I said, oh, wait, what's that about? So he was telling me a little bit about the concept. And so right then and there, I downloaded the audiobook, And awesome. I hadn't started listening to it yet. And three days later on The Five, We did a story about how Marie Osmond said she was not going to leave any money to her children. And we're having a debate about that as we do on The Five. And I said, wait, I just heard about this book. It's called Die With Zero. And I'm giving them the concept. But I said, I couldn't remember who wrote it. And I never do this usually. But as they were continuing the discussion, I got on my phone and Googled and said, Bill Perkins. Aha. So out loud, I said, it's Bill Perkins. Bill Perkins, Die With Zero. And I couldn't believe how, one, how smart this marketing mind of yours is, but also how kind it was for me to show up on the Monday morning and there were signed books for us. And we really thank you for that. Oh, of course. As I said, um, you know, I'm trying to get the the concepts of the book out to, into the world because I believe that it will have a significant impact on, on the world and people's lives for the better. And, you know, you guys are a force, a powerful force. So I want to make sure one, you get the concepts and two, it, it keeps spreading the word. Before I knew we were going to have this chance to talk, I sent a note to my friend Billy Bloom and asked him uh, if he had any questions for you. Um, He did just want to mention this. He said that he'll leave the interviewing to me, but he said that first and foremost, and offered a thanks to Mr. Perkins, who should smile that on a Christmas Eve, a young man in his 20s encouraged me in my 60s to read his book. It was a serendipitous Christmas gift indeed. And he wanted to hear more about your focus on the floor by helping the poor and your views on education. So I'm going to incorporate that into my questions because that's it as well. Before we get started, do you mind just telling people a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up? Gotcha. Well, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, I My dad was kind of climbing the economic ladder to, I would say, up a, up a middle class by the time I was a teenager. Um and I went to school at St. Peter's Prep in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, then college at the University of Iowa. I left school early and became what was like a peon, an assistant peon clerk on the New York Mercantile Exchange floor. And from there, I kind of worked my way through the commodities market to become a trader, got recruited to become a trader in Houston, Texas, where I moved because I was willing to go anywhere the opportunity was at that age. Uh, and I made my fortune here in Texas. Okay. Kind of the short version. (laughs) That is the short version. Tell me a little bit more about your, your parents. Um, there's a, later on in the book, you talk about how your mom, I think she worked in a government job, you said? Yeah, yeah. She was a teacher. So Mm -hmm. my, my dad was kind of this, he was a badass. He was, a you know, he, he, he had no intentions of going to college, but he was a tough guy and somehow saw people playing football and, and told the coach he wanted to play. play. Coach said, you didn't know anything, but he said, I know how to hit people. And then he came out, practiced, and the next thing you know, he was starting. Um, and then he got a scholarship to Iowa, majored in Russian, 
uh, spoke fluent Russian and Spanish, came back, uh, wow. played for the Jets back in the leather helmet days. Wow. Uh, and, and then went to law school. And, you know, he was he was a city councilman and he, he did a lot of he did a lot of things. And he was a I really don't care what you think type of guy. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom uh, is a avid reader. She was going to college while I was a kid, but she became an educator and worked at a program at Jersey City State College where if you attended this program as a high schooler, you you got a scholarship, one of the state schools. I believe it was Jersey City State College, uh, but there may have been other schools. And my mom is a I always, I always tease my mom to call her a communist, but uh, she's, <laughs> she's how's that she's go very, over? <laughs> yeah, 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 it does go over. The mom, you're a communist, uh, you, you know. She's she's a, a but she always was very conservative um, in terms of finance and risk taking, uh, and and you know, safe government job or work in a school or, or that that type of thing. And you know, I I'd rather die dead in the streets than take that path in life. Um, I'm more of a, a risk taker. I, I want to hit the grave with scars, um, both on my heart and my body and my soul and my economic situation. I want to take big risks and try and do big things because I really want to enjoy the ride. And given that you've read the book, you know, you know that my biggest fear is to waste my life, not waste my money. Now, I'm not worried about looking like an idiot or or, or, or that or, or having my heart broken. I mean, I don't want my heart broken, but. <laughs> I, I don't want to waste these moments that we're given. They're finite, they're short, um, and each time in your life is special. And I want to make sure that I get the most out of it. And those thoughts, um, that idea is what led to the book about how to optimize your life, how to use your resources to get the most fulfilling life you possibly can, according to your own values. I don't tell, the book is not like, hey, be like me. The book is, whoever you are, how do you get the most out of you? Mm-hmm. We'll be right back with more of this interview right after this. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. There's a part in the book where you said that you were a risk taker even as a kid, you know, like jumping off your roof, things like that. Yes. Yes. I, I think... Uh... <laughs> I think a lot of boys have that in them, you know, uh, you know, we do we do really strange things, but jumping off the roof, breaking up speakers, being very curious. Um, I think a lot of people are very curious in their their own ways. But um, I I just felt like the downside isn't that big in most situations. Break a leg, twist an ankle, lose some money, go get another job, have egg on your face. So what? You know, that type of attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a gift. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and I and think did you kind of get that from your dad? Yeah, I, I, I believe mm-hmm. so. And I think this is kind of weird. I don't I don't want to uh, be political in this. I'm not a, I'm not a warrior here. But like, you know, my dad comes was a, a kid in like the 30s, 40s. Right. I'm a kid early, you know, uh, born in 69, early 70s. Right. And so. The world has progressed a lot, but I grew up in an environment that was progressing through institutionalized racism, legal racism, kind of overt racism. And then, you know, to what we have today, whatever you want to say is on the spectrum. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you get from people having uh, uh, kind of disparaging views about you that are not true is you get a thick skin that you don't really care what other people think. You mm-hmm. are trained to be like, whatever. Right. Like, I know this is not true. I know this is your own bias. I know this is about you. It's not about me. And that transfers over into other areas of your life. Um, And so I I think this is kind of weird to say, but I think I was fortunate to have that experience to not care about what other people thought or said about me because of my race as a kid to have that transfer over into other areas of my life. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, if you pick up almost any self-help book, including ones that I've written, uh, there's always a chapter about um, not worrying so much about what other people think about you. And I always describe it as understanding as I got older. I'm like, nobody is thinking about you because everybody is only ever thinking about themselves. Right. I think I think it was also reinforced. There's a book called um, The Four Agreements um, that that kind of hammers that point into that. 
what people see is through the lens of their own being personality. It's not actually you, whether it be a compliment or, or, or something derogatory. It's always about them. Them. Yeah. And so, and so um, you know, things like that kind of solidified my position and kind of freed me. You know, I think a lot of people who don't start the business, don't say I love you first, uh, mm-hmm. don't move to another city, uh, don't go on the endeavor is not because they can't take the financial risk or the emotional risk. Um, it's that they can't take the ego risk of, of, of judgment or the perceived judgment of others. Yeah, well, that was true of me because I met my husband on an airplane. Um, this is 1997, so we didn't have phones or anything like that to distract, right? And, or, or AirPods. And we were the last two people to get on the plane and we sat down next to each other. He's reading a book uh, that I asked him about. It was The Tailor of Panama by John le Carre. And I'm a big reader as well. As uh, It sounds like you and your mom and I would get along on that front. And yes. he was much older than me. He's 18 years older than me. I didn't know the exact age. Um, he's British. He lived in England at the time. I lived in Washington, D.C. Um, he had just gotten a divorce and you know, he could have been an axe murderer. But anyway, six weeks later, we went on our first date when he was back in America. And six months after that, I moved there. But what almost kept me from going was my fear about what everyone would think about what I was doing. Because yeah. I was leaving um, a pretty promising career on Capitol Hill. I was rising up through the ranks and had a pretty good handle on things. Um, but that, I think that as I read your book, I kept thinking about what's the biggest risk I've taken. And it might have been that one. And it had the best reward because we're celebrating 25 years of marriage this year. Yeah, that, that's amazing. It, it is, it is um, that, that fear of judgment is paralyzing. Yeah. And I so, had, there was so a family people. friend had taken me aside at Christmas time and she said, do not give up on this opportunity to be loved. And when I have a chance to give advice to young people um, through my minute mentoring group or however else, my favorite piece of advice to give is that choosing to be loved is not a career limiting decision. So take the risk and move to where that person is and your career will flourish no matter where you are. I truly believe that. Yeah, I I, I, I'll give you a plus one, an exclamation point and amen (laughs) (laughs) on that one. I really, really, really uh, love that. That advice. Well, let's get back. Let's get more into the book. Okay, it's called Die with Zero, Getting All You Can from Your Money and Your Life. Could you tell me when the first seeds of this book were planted? Was it when the guy told you you shouldn't save a thousand dollars? Yeah. I mean, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come to me like all at once. Right. It, it, it's kind of this journey. And, and that was part of the journey. My boss at the time, Joe Farrell, who's actually uh, friends with Bill Hemmer, um, had overheard me discussing saving money. And he, and he, and he, can I, can I curse? Sure. I, I want to quote him. He, he goes, he, he, calls me, he goes, uh, he goes, you're an idiot. You know, what are you doing saving this money? And, and kind of explain that you came here not to make a thousand. You came here to make millions. What are you doing? Go enjoy your life. You should be out spending, having a good time. Hmm. Um, and it kind of was a slap across the face because I thought I was going to get a pat on the back and, and I got it like, you're an idiot. And um, I, I, th- I thought about that. And I was like, you know, he's right. So I kind of ping pong the other way, like every single dollar I made, I spent, you know, <laughs> and I, I was at that age where it was kind of like, you know, everybody has this, like, I want to be rich before I'm 30 or 25 or 35 or this, this kind of number. And, you know, I was the, everybody is wanting to say that for a reason. Right. They're not saying I want to be rich at 85 or 90. Right. So inherent in that in that is some sort of value, some sort of experience that you want to have that is not as valuable to you as you age. And so kind of wrestling with these thoughts and reading the book, uh, Your Money or Your Life. Um, I don't I don't know if you've heard of that. I have. Book, but- yeah. That book is kind of the the Bible to the fire movement. It, before the fire movement, there was that book. And that that kind of started the fire movement. And it explains um, the biggest thing you get out of that book is the concept of enough and what money is. And, and money and their definition of money is something you exchange your time for. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when I read that book, you, you know, one of the exercises you do is you start to convert everything into hours of your time. So when you look at like, hey, I'm going to go to a the movie theater, it's it's not, you know, 
$7, it's like, oh, it's an hour 20 of my life, mm. you know, that I'm going to have to work or that t-shirt is like, you know, two hours of my life that I'm going to buy. And so when you think about things that way, one thing it does is help you get your values in line really quickly. And for me, it, it made me realize I really wanted to leverage my time. I wanted my time to be very valuable. So I, did, so I never had to do these calculations again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do I really want to work two hours for this t-shirt? Right. You know, that type of thing. Right. And, and so I, you know, this fear of wasting my life and how do I optimize my life is like, well, I'm not going to go to Chuck E. Cheese, get a whole bunch of Chuck E. Cheese tokens and, not, and walk out. You know what I mean? I'm going to mm. use those tickets, right, that I all, that yeah. I earned from the Chuck E. Cheese and, and get the comb or whatever mm-hmm. the, the gift they give you at Chuck E. Cheese. Right. And, and that's how I kind of thought about money is like I'm not going to exchange hours of my life when I can be doing anything for dollars that are there to one, help me survive, but two have all the choices and experiences I want that fulfill me and then die with a bunch of money. That just is a waste of life. And going back to my biggest fear is wasting my life. I was like, OK, how do I do that? I've always had um, financial anxiety, I would say. Um, right. And I'm sure a lot of people tell you this. It's certainly eased now that I'm not worried about paying my bills. But I remember when I started working um, while I was going to college as well, I would pay, you're gonna, this is going to make you scream, I would pay my student loan and my car payment three payments in advance. Like I would make sure that I had paid them up so that, just in case I didn't have the money in three months, I wouldn't have my car taken away. And then I meet my husband and he's much more of a pay the bill on the day it is due kind of guy. And it would give me such anxiety. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I would hate to get a phone call or like the text now from Verizon saying you're overdue on your payment. That will, that makes me want to scream. I want to, I get hives from that kind of a thing. Again, it's a lot better now, but I'm the kind of person who I guess, and you talk about this in the book, there are people who worry so much about getting older and not having enough money to take care of yourself. How do you help people think in a different way? Well, I mean, you know, the purpose of money is to fulfill your life, right? And the first thing is survival, Right. You're, you're, you, I, I don't you know, we we know there's going to be a day when you're not working, that you're going to have to pay rent and feed yourself and and the basic necessities. And we, we have to first tackle that number to relieve the anxiety. Right. And once that number is is is, you know, you have to sit down, you have to look at these numbers. How much will it actually cost you to live? What will be your Social Security? What's your inflation adjusted? All these things that a financial planner will be great at helping you do. And the one thing you got to pull the reins back on your financial advisor is don't include trips or vacations or, or what you think, you know, my life will look like in a carnival version. Let's just get the survival number right. And then the rest is your choices, your fun, your charities, all the experiences that you want to do for your money. Then you can start allocating, okay, when do I want to spend that? How am I going to spend that down when I die? And so I think once people, you know, the people who have a guaranteed pension by the government, you know, their survival number is set. So really they're just allocating. They have the best pension, the best savings plan in the world, right? The full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, So they're really just thinking about um, how do I allocate the rest of my money throughout my life, given, you know, my health and my, how my health will deteriorate over time and the things that I want to do and where they belong in my life. And, I, I, you know, everybody has to do that. And you're talking about anxiety and the you need to get your survival number locked in. Right. Tell right? people how to tell people about this. This was fascinating. I haven't done it yet. It's almost a kind of scary. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because people, you know, it, it's your your food, your clothing and your shelter. Right. You're, you're just surviving. Right. Like what if I need to survive and your 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 health and maintenance. Right. What what does that look like if you're going to retire at 63, 65? How much money do you need to have based on where you live? You know, it's going to be a, a different number if you're in Iowa City, Iowa versus Jersey City versus Virginia, versus Florida. You may even move to make it cheaper. Some people Mm -hmm. I know have moved to Bali or Costa Rica, right? And they're like, I'm living like a king Uh, on, you know, that that, that type of thing. Um, But 
once you've done that math of like, okay, I need to save this money getting this return. This is my expected death date. I can add five years on it if I want to be conservative. Right. And that, and that's, that's different for everyone based on their health, whether it's And smoke, where whether it was, was in the book, you tell people, and I could add it at the notes at the end, where is it that you can go and calculate that? So there, you know, we, in the book, we looked at the, these, uh, there are actuarial tape, tables that you can look at or insurance tables. Um, I hope those links are still valid that are, that are in the book, but a simple Google search on actual tables, lifespan calculators, et cetera, are out there. And there, there are many. Okay. Um, you, I, I'm going to do it before this airs. I'm going to do it. Right. You see, and, and, you know, nowadays, if, if you are, um, if you go to your doctor or you go to one of these fancy doctors where they pull your blood and they look at your genes and they look at your telomeres, they can pretty accurately predict the, the latest that you can live, right, based on your telomeres. This is, the science is right, kind of crazy right, right. Okay. nowadays. So once you figure it, that got, out. Yes. Then once you, you figure that out, then, then you know, okay, how, how long the money has to last me. Uh, mm-hmm. What where what does what does shelter look like for me? What and what if you're like what if going down the road then you're you need a new roof on your house? You have to have money to pay for that, right? Well, you don't, you you don't necessarily have to have money for that. Um, so a lot of people try to go. Well, I need money for a new roof, and what if I break my leg? And what if my car breaks down? And so what they try and do uh, because they have this fear is to act as their own insurance agent. Right. Right. So, that, right. so they, they, they start hoarding money for all these what ifs in their head. And they're not logical. They're not based on the actual statistics of, of your roof and the probability of it happening to you. It's just, I'm afraid. Let me hoard money. And that's their fear. That's many people's fear responses. Pile up the money. Right. Oh, but what if this happens? And, you know, I argue in the book is that you are not a good insurance agent. One, you have a customer of one. Two, you really don't know the business. Three, the margin and the edge that you're giving up, which is basically hours of your life in order to insure against these activities that you're not an expert on, you're better off just buying the insurance policy. Even though insurance policies, you know, they have an edge. They're, They're better than casinos on their edge. It's still better than what you can do. And that allow that frees you to have a more fulfilling life. Instead of allocating this pile towards what if scenarios outside your area expertise, you allocate those piles to a trip with your family, another dinner, a charity that you want to give money to, whatever the choices you want to make, right? Yeah. I'm not here to tell you what choices to make, but each person has their own constituency of what choices they want to make. And the money is there. You are not here to make money. Money is there to make your life more fulfilling. Right. You're not here to, to fill coffers. The, the coffers are here to fulfill your life. And so people get that backwards. Mm-hmm. Not, not, you know, when I say it, they're like, yeah, it makes sense. But they don't live that way. The, the book is so interesting because you're very logical. And when I read it, it all makes sense to me. And then I walk right up to the edge of the diving board. I'm like, nope. Nope, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see if I can take the plunge on some things. Um, in particular, I was just thinking about my mom who um, has, is retired now, but when she worked in marketing and helping people figure out where to do long-term care for their elderly parents, um, right. one of the things I loved is that she said often the first question was from the, from the kids that are about to make this decision about placing their mom or dad into a facility – one of the first questions was, do you have Fox News? And if they didn't, then we're like, we can't even talk to you then. We have to walk away, which I <laughs> love that story. But, um, you know, the, the cost of care keeps going up, especially on that back end of your life. Um, there, in fact, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal that there's a facility in Wheaton, Illinois, that's just announced that they are increasing by $25 a day. So families who have their mom or dad in there all of a sudden have $750 more a month. And the guy interviewed said, my mom has terrible dementia, but her body is pretty healthy. So she could live for many more years and he doesn't know where he's going to get the money. In your mind then, being logical, is that an insurance answer or a savings answer? I think it's an insurance answer by okay. and for like, you, you don't want to take these risks. Do you want to take the risk on, on costs exploding inflation to, 20 years from now, you want to you want to buy long-term care insurance. And 
if you look at long-term care insurance, buying it early, it's pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. It's very cheap. In um, fact, I think I did that even 20 years ago, and I for, I've kind of forgotten about it. I guess it'll be there. Yeah, it's still there. It's still mm-hmm. out there. It's still a competitive market. Um, they want the money. They want to take your money. They want to invest it in the stock market or whatever they mm-hmm. do. They want to make more returns than what they'll have to pay out later in, in, in future care costs, right? And there's also the 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 idea that you just might die and you never never actually use the long term care. And they right. have a whole pool pool of people, right? who think they're going to live to the 90, right? Everybody's afraid that they're going to live to 95 or 102 and they're dropping dead at 72, 76, 65, right? right? Whatever their pool is. And so they are crushing it and you get a discounted price on and, and peace of mind that you don't have to worry about that, that, that your costs are covered, right? It takes so a little bit of work, right? You're going to have to find the best policy, et cetera. But that's another example of people trying to be their own insurance agent for risks that they're afraid of. Right. If you're not afraid of these risks and you're willing to take them, by all means, take them. Right. Yes, absolutely. And then chapter five is the one about kids, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. so I don't have children. I know that you do. Um, Beautiful daughters. Thank you. Um, I love how you answered this because people listening might be asking the same question, which is, but what about the children? What about leaving money to your children? I thought your answers in that chapter were excellent. About, well, what about your children right now? Maybe you, you say it in your own words because you're certainly better at it than I am. But I thought you're, you answered in a great way. Yeah, I, th- I think, um, you know, thinking of these concepts and discussing it with my friends over the years before I wrote the book, um, that is one of the most common questions or jokes or jabs I get. Like, yeah, that's easier for you for somebody who doesn't have kids. Wait, I have kids. Or, you know, what about the kids? They're going to be left out. And you know, there, there are three parts to this answer. One, the money I'm talking about spending, like spending all your money before you die. I'm talking about your money, not your kid's money, right? You, if you plan on giving money to your kids, that money should be separated out in a trust or an account for them, not in your estate. So if you go run, hit somebody, get in a lawsuit, et cetera, or go gamble it away, it's gone, right? The same laws of physics about them reaching maturity and their bodies deteriorating and the utility of money throughout time that applies to you applies to your kids, right? Um, Two, so you don't want to, thinking about your kids and being delivered out your kids, you want to know what the number is. You don't want to give them a random number at a random date in the future, right? And, and if you look at the average age of uh, uh, the median age of inheritance, it's 60. Well, they're not kids anymore. You know, the money would have a much greater impact earlier in their life. In the book, I argue between 27 and 33, but I certainly know it's not 60, right? Mm-hmm. Because they are in the steepest part of decline. Certain activities have been lost on them. When you're giving them money, what you're really doing is giving them choices, the ability to have experiences. And their ability to convert money into experiences declines over time the same way your body does. And the third one um, is, you know, I call it the three R's, a random date, um, a random amount, because you're not being deliberate. You're not really thinking about what you want to give to your kids. It's just kind of like this tip on the way out of what you happen to not spend when you die. And then random people, because unfortunately, sometimes kids do predeceased parents. Right. Yeah. I argue that it's much more impactful and much more loving and much more deliberate and intentional to figure out how much you're going to give to your kids, carve it out and put it into their estate. That doesn't mean they get the money when they're five or 10 or, you know, they're, they're playing video games. It just means that it's theirs and control of it turns over at a date you set. And the date you will set will, set, uh, set will most likely be when it has the, when they're mature enough, right, both mentally and physically to uh, take advantage of the money, and, but before they're in decline, when it has the most impact yeah. on their life. Could you tell the anecdote about the... Um the single the, the woman who becomes a single mom who later gets remarried and has her life back on track but her parents had left her money after she died but it was it, it would have been much more helpful for her to have that money earlier on correct correct um I can't gosh, her name name escapes me right me now too. but it's essentially her parents did kind of the cultural traditional thing right uh we'll just 
when we die, what I have left over is yours. Not really thinking about what has the most impact and what is most meaningful for my kid. What is the most loving way to think about this? Not really being intentional. And so her story about, hey, she was struggling with two small kids and could have used money for the house, et cetera, at this date um, versus when she got the money, when she finally was back on her feet. And yeah, it was nice to have some extra money, but really could have used it earlier in her life. Right. Yeah. Really could have made things much that, better. That, that really that that struck home to me that. Um, and in fact, I, I, I did something a little bit of the reverse. So um, my parents divorced in 2000. My mom is retired and she lives in Denver. She has a great life, great friend. She's in good health, um, but she's cautious and she's she can be very frugal. And I'm sure she'll listen to this podcast, so she'll hear this. She'll, she'll hear about this. You know, she wanted to do things like play golf with her friends. Um, and you know how gas prices will go up now and then. Sometimes right. she would get a little cautious and be like, mm, maybe I shouldn't go golfing down there because it costs so much money to get back and forth, et cetera. Well, there was one Mother's Day, I think it was, where I was not prepared. I had not sent a gift. I had no- Nothing was going to make it on time to my mom. And flowers weren't, you know, not, weren't necessarily going to be enough. So I had this idea and I created something that I call the fun fund. And I just put some money in there and then I top it up now and then. And I gave it to her and said, this is walled off from everything else, like all the bills and all that. But this money is for fun and you have to use it. You can't sit there. I can't like, don't think of this as a savings account. This is money to go to the movies, go to the theater. And it was a way for me um, at this point in my life, I've had some good success that I didn't anticipate having. Um, Of course, I was ambitious, but I didn't know things would turn out this way. And so the fun fund has become something. One, I have a ready go-to gift I can always give (laughs) if I'm running late on finding something um, for her. But it has also just you know, ease the pressure a little bit. So it was like the reverse. Yeah, I, I think you just create, if, I, I wish I did something like this, you know, in the book, I talk about my grandmother and how I, I, yes. you know, I made it and I gave her a gift. And the only thing she did was buy me a sweater. And my mom corrected me later after the book. She's like, well, she did also buy a necklace for your daughter, but she didn't spend the <laughs> and rest also, of the money. And also, wasn't it that your mom said that don't tell your grandmother that you made a million dollars because she'll... Just yeah. worry so th- just about worry. you're going to lose it. So just worry about it. And, and, and this is kind of like in the, in, in, in the culture, right? Yes. Like our, uh, our parents, our grandparents are, are, are people, you know, around the Great Depression and World War II. And, and, you know, this is kind of like inculcated in their heads forever about saving, 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 saving. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm coming along as like, well, life is about living, living, living. You know, we're not here to just survive. We're here to thrive. And I'm like, well, how given our resources, no matter how little or how much, how do we thrive? How do we allocate and spend capital throughout our lives in order to get the experiences we want? How do we use our resources, including our health and our time? Right. How do we maximize our lives? And so it's tough, though, right, because this has been ingrained into people's heads uh, consciously and subconsciously over a century. Yeah. Um, and so and, and also, yeah, we, of course, we I always say we are so blessed. We were all born in America. <laughs> we <correct>. are America. <laughs> we are American. We are educated and we have opportunity and opportunity has been amazing for us. And we have a system of laws where laws are followed. Um, yeah. Of course, laws can be broken, but the, you know, our system of justice works. I thought it was also interesting. In the book, you said that most people who retire with X amount, let's say that you retire with five hundred thousand dollars in the bank that it's most likely that they will die with $475,000 in the bank? Yeah. The, 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 if you look at the charts, people's net worth keeps going up in, this, in, in their 70s. You know, and I put in the book, like, when's the party? Like, I'm okay with people saving, right? I'm not like this Mr. Anti-Save guy. I'm just like, what are you saving for? Mm-hmm. So even, even when I go to work today, I have to, for me to go to work at the level of like enough, right, for most people, I'm like, what is it that I cannot afford that I wish to purchase? What experiences do I want to have that I cannot afford? Otherwise, you know, it's unlikely that no matter how much I love my job or, or, or enjoy the challenge, that it matches up to the millions of choices this globe offers me and the other experiences, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, when pe- I say the same thing to people, just, you know, you're saving. I'm just like, okay, what are you saving for? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we, we kind of break it down. Like, or what experiences are you saving for? Mm-hmm. But they're not, so, many times they're saving for a rainy day. It's just, it's just insurance. It's just them trying to be an insurance yeah, agent. It's just, it's a habituated. As a matter of fact, I, 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 you know, this is when, when, when I'm with my close friends, I really like hammer it. And I say, you're just giving an answer. You don't know the reason why mm-hmm. you're just habituated into doing something. You've been <laughs> programmed and you think you're making a choice, but you're not. This is an unconscious autopilot choice that you're making out of fear. And you really don't know. And but when I asked the question, you were like, oh, shit, I got to throw an answer, a reason. So right. here's the reason. Right. <laughs> do you do you hear criticism that your book only makes sense for people who are wealthy? Um, I do. I get that criticism. And what do you say? Uh, often. And what I say is, look, the the this book is about not wasting your life and, and, and the resources you have. And so therefore, you have your wealth, your health and time. And if your wealth is very high. You have a lot of waste, right, in the wealth department that will, this book will help you optimize your life. If you have low wealth, health, if you have low wealth, but you have health and time, you still can optimize your life. It's not as useful or not as impactful monetarily as it is on somebody who's rich. But as you know, in the book, I talk about time buckets and and kind of ordering your life. And, you know, life is like Tetris. Let's just assume you are in heaven and God says, here's the bucket of experiences. Pull the ones out you want to have for your journey here on earth. And you pull them out and you're like, I want to go skiing and I want to, I want to hang out with my friends and I want to get married and I want to go to college. I want to get a degree. I want to start a business. I want to have sex 80,000 times. I want, you know, whatever it is, right? You throw it all in there. And God goes to you before you go to earth. He goes, great. You can have all those experiences, but you just have to get the order right. And you're like, wow. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of people, they, they have the experience, like, I want to hang out with my daughters and, and, and go to the movies with X times, but they think that's going to happen when they're teenagers, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trust me, I have two daughters. It's not. It's, <laughs> it's going to be the earlier, earlier times in your life. And you're like, oh, I didn't get the order right. So I don't get the high score on those experiences, right? Yeah. Hey, I want to go partying and I want to go clubbing or whatever, but they didn't do it in their 20s and now they're married and it's like, hey, you're not going to go. You're not going to get as many clubbing experiences as you had. Right. Or they want to go hike Mount Everest or the Himalayas, et cetera. But they waited till they retired in, in their 80. And, their well, and you talk that. a lot about, you know, you have to be mindful of the fact that, oh, I'll do it next year or I'll do it next year. And then if you look at any if you look at it logically, what are the chances you are going to be able to gallivant around Europe at 80? Rather than 60 when your knees are good. Each period of your life, whether it's a a five-year period or a three-year period, there are experiences that are optimal to have in that period, and they do not transfer well to another period in your life. It's really obvious when I talk about kids and spending time with your kids or I talk about being single and roaming around the clubs and then being married, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, these, these experiences don't transfer well into the next period. And some of them, you're unable to do them. For me, um, I like water sports. I used to love to wakeboard, which is a mm-hmm. faster sport. And my wakeboarding days are done because of my back. Now I wake surf, which is a slower sport, and I love it just as much. But... If I were in heaven and I'm like, hey, I want to go wakeboarding these amount of times and my friends is like, hey, let's go wakeboarding. I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to work a little more. I'm going to do this or choose some other activity. Um, I, I, I got to be kind of aware of that mm-hmm. this this may be my last chance. You right? also and we talk a lot about on this show, about fulfilling your purpose and charity and um, uh, finding a cause that you care about and making a meaningful donation, whether it be time or financial resources, whatever you, you can do, uh, given where you are in your life. Um, you, t- you write about somebody that you know who's very wealthy, who lives very frugally, but has donated a lot to charity, and that's what they wanted to do. Right. So the, the, the idea of, of this whole concept of the moment is now and living deliberately and having a maximum impact applies to all your decisions and applies to all entities. It even applies to charity. And so this person 
lived frugally as possible. And then when they died, it was one of those like, oh, my gosh, when they died, who, who knew they had, you know, X millions of dollars and they donated to a charity and everybody's happy. And, and my point is that the impact of that charity, whatever their endeavor was, would have been much be- better off with a lower gift at an earlier time. Mm-hmm. Right. Charity is everything has a return on its investment. Like, let's just say it was saving lives. Do, do, do you you have a lot more money in the future? But, you know, 10 people died because or 100 people died in the past. Right. That could have a, a, a compounding impact because, you know, the funds weren't available. Right. Or education, which has a huge return on investment. Right. So the, the, I believe this person's charity uh, was towards education. The return on education is massive, mm-hmm. way more massive than your savings ability yep. or the long run, long run return of the stock market and has a, a radioactive effect. Um, one of the charities I supported um, was donating to uh, these these uh, kids in Africa in a village. And we and we we asked, could we donate to more to another person, a brother or, or in, in this village? And they're like, no, that one person will lift that whole community up. You, you, we right. want you to donate to another one. And I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. I love and so, I, my husband and I do some work with mercy ships in Africa. And um, of course, we, we have charities that we support here at home as well. Um, but there is something about that ripple effect. Right. It, it's, it's greater than your ability to save. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you're if you're if you're deliberately thinking about, hey, I want to make an impact. You know, I discussed that now is the time. Now is the time for maximum impact. And, you know, going back to your earlier question about people who don't have money is this book teaches you how to get the maximum out of what you have, no no matter what you have. And a lot of that is life ordering. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have no money, it's like, hey, do I, you know, you'll think in a mindset of like, hey, do I go hang out with my friends or do I play checkers with my grandma who's not going to be here in five years? Right. I was reading a novel called Any Human Heart that Jessica Tarlov recommended to me. And right. there was this, I, I thought about you um, and die with zero because in it, he has to go get his passport renewed in his 70s. And he said, wow, this is just a way of looking at your life. He lived seven passports, you know, when you have to get it right, renewed right, every, every 10, 10 years. years. And I was like, yeah. wow, that is actually very interesting because life does go by very fast. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I need another passport. And, yeah. but at least that means, I guess that means that you're going somewhere. Can I ask you about education then? Um, just your, and, and I'm, I don't mean it in, to ask it for politics. I don't, I just curious what you think about some of these statistics that we're seeing. I did a story and Charles Payne commented um, afterwards on air about the Baltimore school districts, Baltimore public schools. Turns out that they have zero children in the school system proficient in math. At this point in Colorado, it was only 32% in Denver public schools. We know that this is a problem all across the country. Our kids are undereducated and you are somebody who you're in venture capital. You're looking at the investments and the jobs of the future. How worried are you about that situation for those kids? I'm horrified. I'm horrified. It's, it's disgusting. That's a whole nother podcast of, of like, causes and, and, and things to fix it. But essentially, the, the, the school systems are failing America's kids. Um, and granted, uh, you know, there are other social and, and community issues that contribute to that. But by and large, uh, something has to change. Schools need to be competitive and, and accountable for, for yeah. these results. It's one of the things where more and more money is uh, plowed into the school system. Um, you know, the, yes, the uh, in Baltimore, um, each student uh, gets six thousand dollars more than other students in the state, and yet their results are that bad. I feel like corporate America needs to get involved, in my opinion, because it's I, I, unacceptable, I, right? That you guys are wanting to hire a diverse population of workers. And Correct. if they can't do basic functions, we know what happens. Your likelihood of ending up uh, in trouble before you're 18 is really high. I'm not saying everybody needs to go to college, but you are going to need to know how to do something, a trade of some sort. And if you can't do the basic reading or the basic math, you're not going to be able to pass those either. Yeah, it's 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 scary. And, and I, I, you know, 
things get better by competition and the school system needs competition. Mm-hmm. That, that's where I stand on. And a lot of states are sort of moving in that direction. So we'll see. But I, maybe you and I can I hope that we keep talking because you're my new best yes. friend. Um, <laughs> right. Do you think workaholism in America is going away? Uh, I would hope it does, but it, it's it's not. Okay. It's not. It's I think not. people get, you know, think, think about your life and, and your friends' lives and people who have gotten good at something, right? They've gotten good by creating habits, perfecting a skill, doing it over and over again, right? You're an excellent host, uh, entertaining, et cetera, because you've been honing your craft and you've been focusing a lot of your energy on doing this. Some, it may come naturally to you when to ask a question, when to pause, when to jump in, right? And this is the things you've been working on. Now, when you were 17 or 18, you would think, I want to go here and I want to go to France and I want to do this. And these are the things I want to do. I want to learn how to water ski and I want to learn a language. Like you had all these interests and hobbies. But in order to get the gold, you've focused most of your efforts on building these mental muscles and, and these activities. Mm-hmm. And they become habit for you. Yeah. Right. So now you're habituated into doing something. I know. But so like in your book, you talk about how people might say, but I love working. And I do love my job. And I was like, oh, that's me. He's talking about me. I'm definitely talking about you. I'm talking about you. <laughs> because I always think everyone's talking about me. But no one's actually thinking about me. We have already established they're thinking about themselves. Uh, yeah. So, the, the, you, know, I, you know, I use a food example. I said, you know, the reason why you don't like crickets on a stick is not because you don't like crickets on a stick. It's just because you didn't grow up in China mm-hmm. where it's a delicacy, Right. So the reason why you like your job is because you've just been doing it for so long, mm-hmm. right? You, you learn to, to enjoy and, and, you know, for the most part, the things you're successful, the things that you're successful and you're good at, and it becomes kind of this trap, right? Mm-hmm. A good trap, but a trap nonetheless. And I, I you know, my argument is, is I, I can't, you know, say you don't like it. I can't have the heroin argument, right? The heroin addict is like, Hey, I'm happy on heroin. You got a problem with my heroin, <laughs> you know, and, and they're right. You know, I hear heroin's a great drug. Right. But what, what I can say is like, that's not the optimal life for you. This is what you're missing out. And it's unlikely out of the millions of things you can be doing that you pick the exact optimal one. Mm-hmm. Well, so, yeah, in fact, like I love, of course, I loved being White House press secretary as well. But it's a good thing there was an end date on that. I remember at some point lamenting to President Bush saying, oh, I'm going to miss everybody so much. And he said, well, we don't have a choice. We don't get to stay here past noon on January 20th. So <laughs> you're going to go on and you're going to have a great new chapter and everything's going to be great. Now, it just took a while. I think a lot of people look at the transition that I've had from those days to now and they think, oh, wow, so easy, so smooth. <laughs> when you live it, it doesn't feel that way. But I am at a point now where I'm not worried about what I am going to do next. Well, and I would say that your adventure is, is your journey is great. I, yeah, I it's want been your great. story, right? Like, yeah, it's that's a really good story. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, listen, the destination is the same. It's always the grave. More to come right after this. Okay. Tell people about your 45th birthday and then I'll do my short lightning round with you and we'll let you get on your way. Okay. So, um, a birthday, uh, a milestone for me. And I'm thinking, you know, I want to get, the people I know and love together and go on a destination party. And I thought to myself, you know, the life that I'm willing to lead or are able to lead, not everybody can. Right. And so one of the things you used to say um, uh, in, in a nice way is that, listen, as you become successful and you want to do things in your life, you either have to uh, scholarship your, your friends and family, or you have to get new friends. Right. You have to scholarship your friends or get new friends. And I, I like my friends. I love my friends. I, I'd li- I would like to have them in my life for the rest of my life. And, and I like to share experiences with my friends. That's one of the things that gives meaning and joy to my life. And so I want to go to St. Bart's. Um, I rented out the complete at the time. It's called the Taiwana LVMH bottom out. Um, I had my mom, uh, my my family, close friends, um, new, old friends and, you know, had uh, singers and entertainers. And it, it was a it was a great blowout birthday week. And it was a significant expenditure for me at the time. But I thought, when when am I ever going to get all these people together? Will they will they even be alive? Will they move away? Will they not? Will they have the time? 
et cetera. And I just give it the, oh, what the, what the F, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> do whatever, oh, oh, do whatever it takes uh, mentality. And that this was the time to create this type of memories and these type of experiences. And, you know, one of the concepts in the book is when you have a great experience, not only do you get joy and meaning from it at that time, but you also get dividends from that experience. Mm -hmm. I call them the memory dividend. And that instead of looking at it as like this giant expense, it's this investment into my retirement because you retire on memories. You really don't retire on money. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just kind of reminisce about the old days and the things that you did in the life you had. And anybody who's ever hit a game winning home run, had a first kiss, had sex or whatever, they understand the memory dividend. They're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, I get joy out of thinking about this thing. I actually have more conversations about it. I'm actually talking to you right now about my, this birthday, this wonderful birthday that I had in St. Bart's with my friends, family and loved ones. And, and you know, when I one time when I was sitting on the beach, you know, my mom's coming out a door, the, the, the hotel kind of goes up in these like villas and people are waving and hi. And I thought, this is what heaven must be like. Mm. All wow. your loved ones, yeah. it's beautiful, the beach, et cetera. It's like, I'm here in heaven right now. And, 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 and to this day, it's one of my uh, most cherished memories, um, cherished experiences. And I still get dividends from that experience. Um, Love it. Eight years ago. I love it. Nine years ago. <laughs> okay. I have some short questions with Dana Perino. That's what we call them. Okay. Um, do you have a biggest regret? Yes. Um, the, the, I, 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 I'm going to give you two. Okay. One is anytime I've ever hurt anybody unnecessarily mm -hmm. out of anger. That, that is my biggest regret. But the second one is not going backpacking throughout Europe with my friend Jason Rufo uh, when we were clerks on the floor. He took off time, borrowed money from a loan shark and went backpacking through Europe. Wow. I said, you're, I said, you're crazy. Um, I'm going to stay here and work and try and get ahead and grind. And, and, and so, then to be told that you should have saved a thousand dollars. Exactly. <laughs> to, to be told you idiot, what yeah. are you doing saving a thousand dollars? And I'm just yeah. like, I missed this trip. So then would you recommend it. people, uh, if they're between their high school and college years, would you recommend a, a gap year or college at working? I begged my daughter to take a gap year, mm. but she would not take it. Wow. Interesting. Um, I begged her, um, mm. but she wouldn't take it. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, when are you going to really do something like that? And will it be age appropriate if you decide to do it later? And right. that type of thing. Right. You're an amazing so. dad. I'd be like, I'd be like, yeah, OK, see ya. No, actually, <laughs> yeah, no. I would have been like your daughter. I, I would have gone. No, um, she's like, all my friends are going to school. Like, nobody's doing that, dad. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> people do it all over. The Australians do it like crazy. The Europeans do it like crazy. There's a whole websites and tools yep. and resources online about where you can get a job and then doing this and right. go here and travel. And I was just like, oh my God. And those are the, yeah. usually the most interesting people that you interview later in life when you're hiring for positions. Oh, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. I was in Australia visiting my, my, my uh, brother and the, the waitress started chatting us up because they're very friendly overseas. And, and there's like, what are you here for? And I was like, well, I'm just working. You know, we got to talking and she says, I'm, I'm here just working because Australia pays very high wages. And then she's going through Southeast Asia, backpacking through China on a train, et cetera. And I was just like, oh, my God. I, mean, I know. I, I always wanted to write. How did I waste my life? I always know? wanted like, to write the great travel essay book. Um, right. And maybe one day I will. I've, I've, I would love to do that. One time I read this book called Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon. Wow, that just came to me. And he wow. does this trip all around America in a camper van. Um, using only the blue highways on the map, right? The, so the non-interstate. Wow. Um, people who don't have never seen a hard copy map don't know what I'm talking about, but um, <laughs> I, I love that. And then I actually, I had this idea um, for I'm a ordering book it right now where as we Peter speak. and I would travel um, around the country in a RV and that we would visit all of these places um, like I would go to Kennebunkport, Maine and see uh, the 41s when they were living. This is back when they were living. And then we would continue on and go see my family at the ranch in Wyoming. And then we would go to California and down there because we lived in San Diego, come across, see Denver, see President Bush in, in Texas. And then when we got back to the East Coast, I-95, that was when we had to make a decision. Were we going to go north or south where we had a house in South Carolina? 
And so my husband's nodding along. He's nodding along. And I would write a book about the experience. He's like, okay. And at the time, we had Jasper, America's dog. And I said, and the kicker is we take a puppy. And the first thing Peter said was, you can't take a puppy on a road trip. And I was like, you're a dream killer. I've never quite forgiven him for that. Um, I mean, I guess he's probably right, but I had this dream of writing this travel essay at some point. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it'd just be a little bit more adventurous if you take Yes, exactly. And imagine the Instagram pictures. Exactly. The, gra- the gram will love I, it. Since that. you have young daughters, I'm sure you've become an Instagram dad. You, you, you know how to take the pictures, get the good angle. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're, now they're like, you know, I'm not cool enough. They're like, you know, they wish I wasn't on Instagram. They don't like any kind of publicity for me. They're just like, dad, we just want a normal life. (laughs) Well, they sound very well adjusted. (laughs) Um, A couple more questions. How did you make your first dollar? My first dollar, I was a busboy. Yep. People know what a busboy is. That's sure. the person who carries the dishes at a restaurant. Yep. My first dollar. Actually, before that, I mean, I don't count dollars for like shoveling snow that you're sure. kind of forced to. You can do that. But yeah, shoveling snow. Okay. And now you don't have to because you're in Houston. Yeah, exactly. Um, what, do you, what question do you think every manager should ask in a job interview? Well, um, why do you want to work here? Mm-hmm. I, that's my question. I always ask, why do you want to work here? Um, what, what is it that you're hoping to get? And, and you know, my favorite answer for, for me is the money <laughs> because I know I can always show it with the money in exchange of a time. But I, I want to know, you know, are they here to learn? Or are they is exciting? You know, why do you want to work here? And that, that kind of tells you whether it's a cultural fit for them. Because yeah. when, when um, people come to work for me, at least, um, you know, I want them to succeed. I, I'm, 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 I root for the long ball. I root for home runs. Um, and, you know, if somebody, if, if somebody's coming to your organization with expectations that what it offers, you know, because sometimes people build these ideas up in the head and it doesn't, they'll constantly, one, they'll be wasting their time. And two, they'll constantly be looking over their shoulder to go somewhere else. Yeah. And so, yeah. So do when do you plan to retire, if at all? I'm like quasi retired. Um, okay. You know, the, the idea of the book is like, you, d- you don't have to like, per se, stop working, but you have to use your resources that you're building. Mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of people's like, oh, I love my job. I'm like, listen, keep doing it. Make sure you spend the money though. Right. Why yeah. is the money building? You're, you're 60. Like wh- wh- when's the party, dude? Like, do you, you have an me? adventure or an experience that you are planning or that you want to do? Um, my, my favorite, uh, this is going to sound I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, my favorite thing is the, the right now is yachts in the Mediterranean. Okay. The Amalfi Coast. Um, so have I'm you watched my beautiful friend on HBO? No, I have not. I'm going to highly recommend it. It takes place um, in Naples, but then they go to the coast for their vacations. It's the most beautifully filmed show on HBO. There's three seasons waiting on season four. It's about these two girls who are super smart and their teacher recognizes it, and then they take very different paths in life. Uh, but they're still connected, and it's amazing. I think you would love the scenery. Yeah, it's it's the Amalfi Coast is amazing, and 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 you know the one the one thing I would say is like, you know, people are like, oh, that's easy for you to do. You're rich, and and I just want to point out every single place I've gone, there's always somebody doing it one one thousandth the price I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. They're seeing the same view. They're interacting with the mm-hmm. same people. They're absorbing the culture. They're getting the food. They're soaking it up and they're, they're doing it. They're backpackers. There's people that don't have any money who are like, well, I'm going to go work or hustle in a restaurant right. under the, you know, and, 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 and do it. And so everyone, everyone has the ability to do uh, the things I do. It's just, I, I may get there a different way. Yeah. I may be on this boat, but like, you know, it's the well, same sun, same water. I think it's an know? amazing concept um, and life is meant to be lived and yes. God gave us his gift and people can live their life however they want. But I think one of the things that's great about this book is that it's given me a lot to think about. And also I feel like I've made a new friend. So I look forward to seeing you in the future. I will be your best friend, but I will be on you to go live your life. (laughs) Okay, I will do that. I will be on you. Uh, The book is Die With Zero, Getting All You Can From Your Money and Your Life by Bill Perkins. Thank you. Thank you.
I love that I had a chance to talk with Bill. I do feel like I have a new best friend. I learned a lot from his book and from our conversation, and I hope you did too. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.